Uh, anyone who knows me well knows that I absolutely hate flying. I feel like I've been saying these anybody who knows me well statements a lot. I'm going to keep on going with it. But anyway, anybody who knows me well knows that I hate flying and I absolutely cannot stand being in the air. I don't know if it's because I get nauseous or because I've watched uh, too many movies about planes going down, but I absolutely cannot stand being in the air. It makes me anxious. It makes me nervous. And the most uncomfortable thing about being in the air is I have no opportunity to do anything other than sit and wait. Um, probably the worst uh, flight I've ever been on happened about 10 years ago. I was on my way uh, from Atlanta to New York. My best friend from college was preaching his initial sermon, and I made a promise to him that I would be there to, to support him. I uh, went to uh, Atlanta airport, jumped on a plane. Uh, the, the takeoff was a little rocky, but we, we made it in the air. And uh, unfortunately, about halfway into the flight, uh, you hear those words uh, that you don't want to hear when you're a person like me, uh, that we are about to um, go into some rough turbulence. Uh, we went into some really rough turbulence, and we got um, ready to land, and the pilot comes back on and tells us that we cannot land because the wind is too high. Minutes turned into hours. We just kept circling and circling and circling. Now, I already hate flying, but to be in the air and to be circling and waiting just made it even worse. It's something about waiting. It's something about not having what you want. It's something about having to be patient that makes our hearts hard and makes our hearts cold. It's something about waiting that is so hard that we never really want to wait. I can remember uh, being on that plane and thoughts coming to my mind. Was this it? Will we die? I remember the pilot even saying that he was running low on fuel. He told us that he was running low. I'm like, bro, keep that to yourself, bro. But he got on the intercom and he told us that he was running low on fuel. And he said, we don't have enough fuel to make it to another airport. He says, we're going to try our best to land the plane. <laughs> I'm like, really, bro? Now, here I am, a minister, a preacher. Wasn't no help to nobody on the plane, right? <laughs> Since I'm standing here, y'all know the plane landed. And I can remember getting on the ground and I can remember this amazing sense of peace just coming over my life and my heart because finally the wait was over. Finally, we were on the ground. Finally, we were in a position where we were safe and we were sound. The more I think about my experience on that plane, the more I'm convinced that that is how life is many times. You will go through seasons in your life where you will have to wait. You will go through seasons in your life where it will be hard for you to wait. You will go through some turbulence. You will go through some suffering. You will go through some circumstances that are really, really uncomfortable. But our text this morning gives us a present-day picture, and it gives us an opportunity to apply the truth of how we should respond after the waiting is over. A lot of times we focus on what we do while we're waiting, but I love our text this morning because it gives us some very practical things to apply after the wait is over. When we look at our text, when we go back into it, we see three specific things that we want to focus on this morning. The first thing we see is a divine or a, a, a desperate discussion among a group of people. Verse 58 once again says, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord has shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced. 
And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they made the decision to call him Zechariah after his father. Uh, most times when a baby is born, the arrival of the baby is, it is an opportunity for joy and excitement, uh, not simply for the mother and the father, but also uh, the family and also the community. But this was something totally different. This was a baby being born to an elderly priest and a barren woman. This would have been the biggest news in town. Excuse me uh, for using this illustration. This would be like Sister Betty and Brother Larry coming to us and saying we're having a baby. This would be like Joyce and Bob coming to us and saying that we're having a baby. There are, there are most seasoned saints in the church, and that's why I picked on them. But when you think about it, this news would have been totally transformative. This news would have been something that the entire community would have been willing to celebrate. In verse 13, we remember that Elizabeth is barren, but God is about to bless her. Elizabeth has gone through a rough season, but in verse 13, it declares, The angel said to Zechariah, her husband, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been answered. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear the son. After a season of suffering, after a season of waiting, God makes a promise that they will have a baby. God tells her, you are barren, but I'm about to bless you. And upon hearing the news in verse 13, we see verse 18, Zechariah gives a response. Verse 18, he says, uh, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. He's essentially saying, we are too old to have a baby. He's saying no one would expect us to have a child. So Zechariah responds in unbelief, and rather than, than focusing on God's promise, he focuses on God's problem, and because of unbelief, he is not simply permitted to speak until the promise is fulfilled. He is judged for his unbelief. For nine months, he cannot speak, uh, not out of a desire, but out of a divine discipline from the Lord. And because of God's discipline, Zechariah is not able to speak, and the community had to make a discussion, or, or the community had a discussion about what the child's name would be. Because of his sin, he cannot speak up, and because of his sin, he cannot do what God had called him to do. It was the man's responsibility to name the child, but, but because of unbelief, he could not do that. And because of his unbelief, the community comes to have a discussion about what the baby would be named. Uh, this should not surprise us because anytime a baby is born, uh, usually people have an opinion about the name of the child. Um, strangers have an opinion. Um, family members have an opinion. Uh, even pastors have an opinion. I'm still waiting on somebody to name a child after me. <laughs> Serious, like, I really feel like I'll know I'm a good pastor when <laughs> Keiston and Alexis or, you know, or Chuck and Ashley or, you know, someone names a child after me. I'm just going to put that in the atmosphere, let y'all deal with it. In all seriousness, though, when you look at the text, on the eighth day, the child will be circumcised, and the child had to be named. And since the father was silent, the people had a discussion about what the baby would be named. Because the father is silent, they go to Elizabeth and say, we're going to just simply name him Zechariah because his, his father's name is Zechariah. Uh, the who in the text are those people who are present. It is everyone in the community who's trying to make the decision. Elizabeth responds and says, no, he should be called John. Now, for me, it makes sense that Elizabeth should make the decision because, once again, she carried the baby. 
Uh, the baby made her feet swell. The baby made her nauseous. The baby had hijacked her body. So it makes sense to me that she should make the decision. But, but culturally and biblically, they needed the father to confirm the decision. So first we see the discussion among the people. But then secondly, we see a decision made by the parents. Verse 62 says, And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to call him. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John, and they all wondered. In verse 63, Zacharias asked for a tablet, and he writes on the tablet, and he decides that the name is John. Catch this. He's clear. He doesn't take a lot of time. He doesn't say, I think or I wish. He's not swayed by the culture or the crowd. He does not phone a friend. He does not call a psychic. He says his name will be called John. When John is called, when, when Zechariah says his name is called John, the people are astonished because no one had ever heard that name in the family before. They begin to ask questions. Why would this couple make a decision this way? Why would this couple call this baby John? It's not like Zechariah and Elizabeth could speak to discuss it because he's mute. Like, how in the world are they able to be in agreement on a title concerning his name? Like, what would bring such unquestioned, what would bring such an unquestioned consensus? Like, what would allow them to be on one accord about something that he could not verbally speak about? And when you go back to verse 13, you'll see that the angel tells them that he shall call his name John. In reality, they were, on, they were on one accord because of Christ. Elizabeth and Zechariah were in agreement based upon God's word. There was no room for an opinion when God had spoken. There was no room for a question when God had already given a divine answer. When God speaks, we don't need to bring our thoughts or opinions into it or our feelings into the conversation. We need to respond with submission to what God has already said. We need to bring our agreement to what God has already said. This is such a profound lesson in the life of every Christian, but also in the life of every parent, that we need to be in agreement about what God has said about our kids. Yes, we have thoughts. Yes, we have dreams. Yes, we have visions. Yes, we want to know their future. But rather than inserting my personal opinion or rather than giving my personal plan, I need to be at a place in my life where I have determined what has God said about my children or what has God said about my family? What has God said about my faith? What has God already predetermined about my life? When you look at the text, to fulfill God's word, they needed to be submissive to God's word. They didn't simply ask the question, would our kid be good in math? Or would our kid be good in soccer? Or would our kid be good in school? They were, they were committed to making sure that their kid would become who God called them to be. They were committed to making sure that, life's, that John's life was a life that honored the Lord. We know from, from the text that he would be a wild man, he would be a street preacher, uh, he would be called a crazy person because he would be yelling and screaming, repent for the kingdom of God at hand. They knew that he would be uncommon, he would not be popular, he would be someone that the world would be, somebody that, someone that the world would call crazy, but his parents were willing to accept who God had called their son to be. 
not from a cultural standpoint, but from specifically from a biblical standpoint. For, for every parent, I want to just say this. Every believer, I want to say this. We must be okay with who God has called us to be. As a parent, I've got to be okay with who God has called my children to be. My kids may not be the most athletic, but that's okay as long as they're becoming who God has called them to be. My kids may not be the smartest, but that's okay as long as they are becoming who God's called them to be. My kids may not be the most popular, but that's okay as long as God, as long as they are becoming who God has called them to be. Same thing is true for my life. I may not be the greatest preacher, greatest pastor, most well-known person. That's okay as long as I'm becoming who God has called me to be. Why, why would they decide to name him John? They decided to name him John because God decided to name him John. And when God gave them an option, they realized that there was no other option. When you think about it, the name Zechariah is not evil within itself. There's nothing wrong with that name other than the fact that it was, a, uh, it was an option other than the option God gave them. There's going to be a lot of times in your life where you are presented with things that are not sinful within themselves. They're gonna be, you're going to be presented with opportunities and things that are not at all bad. Those things are good things. But you've got to ask yourself, what has God said? What option has God given me? It's true. God does not care about certain decisions that you make. God does not care if you drive a GMC or a Ford. God does not care if you have an iPhone or Android. God does not care if you like the, the Popeye sandwich or the Chick-fil-A sandwich. God don't care. <laughs> he does not care. Well, Chick-fil-A is God's chicken, but <laughs> God does not care, though. But there are certain things that God has spoken about. And there are certain things that God has already determined, and we got to get to a place in our life when we can identify when God has spoken, when God has determined something, there is no other option other than the option God has given us. Verse 66 says, And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, and they asked, What then will this child be? Every baby is a bundle of possibilities. Every time we see a child, we ask questions like, Will they be married? Will they be single? Will they be successful? What will they do for a living? We're told that his name is John, and when we are told that his name is John, then uh, Zechariah is able to speak a prophecy about his life. He's able to make a declaration from God about who his son will be. Uh, in the same way that his unbelief had been responded to with the inability to speak, now his belief is responded to with the ability to speak. Uh, his disobedience was responded with by punishment. His obedience is responded to with praise. God rewards his disobedience, but God also responds to his obedience. It's a, it's a good word for all of us, that when we respond with disobedience, there is a consequence. But also, when we respond to obedience, there is also a profound um, consequence. If we continue reading in Luke, we'll get to verse uh, chapter 15. Uh, we, we see the story of the prodigal son. We see the story where the son goes to his dad and he says, Dad, uh, I want all that I have. Essentially, he's going to his father and saying, give me my inheritance. He's saying, I want to live as if you were dead. He's saying, give me what you're supposed to give me. And he takes it and he goes and he responds in unbelief and he goes to the far country and he finds himself in ruin. There is a consequence to sin. Please hear me. 
anytime we are disobedient to God, anytime we respond with a lack of faith, there is a consequence to that. But he comes to the end of himself. He goes back to his father, and here's what we see. In Luke 15, 21, it says, And then the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, Quickly bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. As soon as the son responds in faith, the father also responds in faith. The father says, quickly, hurry up, bring him the robe, bring him the ring. Hurry up and kill the fatted calf because we need to celebrate. The father doesn't wait and see if he had got his act together. The father doesn't wait and see if he repeats the same mistakes. The father doesn't wait to measure his performance. The father immediately restores the son because the son responded in faith. I think we need to hear that this morning. Then when we respond in faith, God also responds to our faith. When we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. When we respond to God in faith, God answers quickly based upon our faith because that is God's heart, to respond to our faith. The Father immediately responds. God immediately removes the punishment. God immediately gives the obedience. God immediately allows him to see that his faith was real and it was something that could be responded to. So first we see the discussion among the people. Secondly, we see a decision by the parents. And lastly, we see a declaration of praise to the people. Verse 64 says, And immediately he opened his mouth and his tongue was loose and he spoke blessings to God. In verse 64, his voice returns, and he begins by praising God. Uh, one commentator says it this way, and I think it's true. Uh, the initial response should not be overlooked because it's not insignificant. Because many of us, if faced with the same set of issues or circumstances, would have missed the opportunity to honor God. Because we would have made the whole situation about us. We would have told people how hard it would have been to be afflicted for nine months. We would have found a way to point the finger to ourselves rather than pointing the praise to God. Many of us would have been like, do you know how bad I felt? Do you realize how long it's been since I've been able to speak? You have no idea what I've been through. You cannot believe. Can you not believe that, that God would allow me to go through this? I mean, I know sister so-and-so or sister brother had done worse than me. Why would God allow this? I mean, I mean, Gabriel, the angel, was tripping. I mean, I was telling the truth. My wife was old. Like, he didn't say any of that stuff. <laughs> he didn't make any excuses. But he opened up his mouth, and he began to bless the Lord. He began to speak about the faithfulness of God. He began to speak about the goodness of God. And it is a reminder for all of us that what comes out of our mouth is an indication of what is going on in our heart. Say it again. What comes out of your mouth is an indication of what is going on in your heart. Luke chapter number 6, verse 43 says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. 
For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Catch this. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So let me say this again. What comes out of your mouth is an indication of what is going on in your heart. It's easy for us to, to be here at church. Let me just say this. Praise team, y'all are on fire today. I mean, y'all, y'all, were, y'all were on it. And it's easy for us to, to sing those songs and, to, and to, to lift our hands, to hold hands. To, oh, that's great. But what happens after the service is over? What happens after Satan tries to get us to say something negative? What happens on the conflict on the way home? What happens when, when, when work is hard? What happens when my kid is not obeying? Like, what happens when things are rough? You look at the text. He is now listing the faithfulness of God on his lips. He had gone months without speaking. He had endured questions. He had endured trying to figure out how to communicate. He had faced even the reality that this young girl, Mary, had responded better than he had. And now he gives, now God gives him another opportunity. He takes advantage of that opportunity and he gives God praise. He messed up the first time. He dropped the, he dropped the ball on the first one. But now we have an opportunity to see he's faithful over the opportunity that God brings back to him. Question for us. After dealing with issues, not simply for minutes or months or years, while going through your season of suffering, while going through rough circumstances, and when God chooses to bring you out of those things, what does your community hear when you speak? What do my coworkers hear when I speak? What do my children hear when I speak? Not what should they hear, not what do I want them to hear, but if they were under oath and they had to give a testimony about what comes out of your mouth, what would they say? What would be the consistent theme in your household, on your job? Like, what would they say? If they had to just listen to what you had to say, what would the people say? For Zechariah, the people heard something profound, and it caused the people to recognize that this baby was about to be a part of God's ultimate plan. When you look at the text, he begins with adoration because his adoration is is grounded in the explanation that he is excited about God's faithfulness because God... Is, is fulfilling his promise. In the text, God fulfills the promise to redeem his people. It's an it's a, it's a opportunity for us to really um, be challenged with, like, what is worship? Like, worship, biblically, is an opportunity for us to celebrate and focus on who God is and what God has done. Like, that's why we do what we do here. Like, we want to know who God is, and we want to celebrate what God has done and what God is doing. I've been often asked, like, why do, why do y'all sing those hymns? And why do y'all, like, sing those songs? Like, why can't we sing other songs? Let me just answer that right quick, right? There, there are two answers. Number one, we're doing the best we can. Everybody here is part-time, right? So sometimes you may go to a church and they have a full band and they, all they're doing all week is, is practicing music. We don't have that. We have people who come here on Sunday mornings and they give their best. And Chris and his team do an excellent job. Amen. And we need to be... 
we, we need to be thankful for what they're doing because they are gifted and they are using their gifts for the building of God's kingdom. And that's a huge deal. But on the other side, and I want you to hear me very clearly on this, there's certain songs we don't do and there's certain things that we're not committed to because it's one thing to preach bad theology. It's another thing to sing bad theology. Like, we want the messages and the music to be married. We want there to be a consistent flow of what we do. So there's certain things we don't sing because those things are not consistent with what God has said in his word. There's certain things we don't do as a church because those things are inconsistent with God's plan for our life. So when you think about the idea of worship, we want to bring ourselves to a place to where we are clearly seeing, once again, who God is and what he has done. We want to sing songs that get us to think and to contemplate about the goodness of the Lord. We want to sing songs that point us to the cross. We think on the son not sparing whom he sent to die. I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee, how great thou art. It is when we see God clearly that our soul begins to celebrate and magnify the Lord. When you think about the prophecy, and we'll go a little bit deeper into it this week in Bible study, Zechariah's prophecy it can be broken down into four different parts. Uh, first of all, you'll see the plan of salvation. You'll see that Zechariah praises God because God is fulfilling his promise to redeem the people of Israel. The, the redemption comes from the payment of Christ on the cross. So first we see the plan of salvation. We see that God has a plan and God is fulfilling his plan for us and to us. That is a very important part of our salvation. Not only do we see the plan of salvation, we also see that God has a promise to fulfill the salvation. Jesus is the one who is able to do what we cannot do for ourselves. There's purpose here in salvation. That God's purpose for us is that we walk and serve him. Verse 72 says, to show mercy, promise to our forefathers to, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham and to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of enemies, catch this, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. What's the purpose? What's the goal? Is that we can freely have a relationship with God. Well, we can serve him without fear, catch this, for all the days of our life. Well, we can be with him all the days of our life. I want to encourage you this week. I don't have time to read it. When you think about it, this whole idea without fear, it reminds me of Romans chapter number 8, verses 31 through the end of the chapter, that nothing can separate us from the, from the love of God. And since that is true, we have no need to fear. So we definitely see the plan of God. We see the purpose of God. We also see the prophet of God. You will see um, in the text where, where Zechariah begins to speak about his son in relation to the life and the mission of Jesus. I'm going to get away from my notes because I don't even have time. When you think about it, the life and the mission of John the Baptist is, is defined and identified in light of Christ. 
That's profound because the same thing is true for us. Your life, your mission, your significance, your identity will always be interpreted in light of Christ. Like your life cannot be seen if you're a believer outside of Christ. My significance, my greatness, my impact, my influence is all connected to Christ and his life and his mission. And if I try to live my life separated from that, my life will not have true purpose and my life will not have true significance. So the prophecy gives us the purpose of salvation, the plan of salvation, the prophet of salvation. And lastly, and I'm done, Christian, come on back up. We see lastly, the peace of salvation. Verse 79 is very clear. It tells us in the text that we will have peace with the Lord. A lot of times we seek peace um, in ways that just disappoint us, in ways that, that bring us down. A lot of us have bought the lie that if I have more money, I'll have more peace. If I had a greater title, I'll have more peace. If I have more of this or more of that, I'll have more peace. And I want to tell you very clearly that peace with God does not come from your performance. It does not come from how many times you come to church or how well you read your Bible or how many times you check off a box. Peace with God does not happen that way. Also, peace with God does not come from property or possessions. Uh, God has blessed me to have a couple, couple things that I enjoy. But I can tell you this, out of all the great things I have, none of those things give me peace. We built a house a couple years ago. Doesn't give me peace. I always wanted a Yukon. Got that. Doesn't give me peace. Was able to go on a great vacation this summer. Didn't give me peace. Those things, like possessions and property, do not bring you peace. But if we want to have real peace, it's found in the payment. The passage is telling us that the peace that we need, the peace that God has for us, comes in response to God's payment for our sins. The gospel message is very clear that God loved you so much that he made a decision to die for your sins in your place, to make a payment that he should not have made, but it was a payment that you could not make. It was a payment too great for you. But because of God's love for you, because of God's commitment to you, God says, I love him too much. I love him too much to leave the dead. So Jesus comes. He lives a sinless life. He lives a perfect life. He is the, the spotless, blameless Lamb of God who is slain for the sins of the world. He dies for our sins and our place. He takes our place. He goes where we should go so we could go where he came from. And because of the gospel message, because of the payment of Jesus, because of the sacrifice of Christ, because God has removed my sin debt, that's how I have peace. Can't find it nowhere else. If I want peace with God, I got to rest in the payment for my sins on the cross. I think it's important for me to do this. There's one here today. I'm saying, preacher, man, I, I hear you. I, I understand what you're saying. You know, I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand that I made some mistakes. But right now, I just don't understand this payment thing. I understand church. I understand maybe getting baptized. But I've never gotten to a place in my life where I've surrendered my life to the Lord. I've never gotten to a place in my life where I have come and asked the Lord 
to pay for my sin. Why I've asked the Lord to exchange my place on the cross for a place in heaven in eternity. And if that's you this morning, I want to invite you and encourage you to make that decision. Every hair, every hair closed, or every head by every eye closed this morning. If you're here this morning, you say, Preacher, you're talking to me. I'm not talking to perfect people. I'm not talking to people who, this is not about having everything together and not having room to grow. This is what this is about. This specifically is about if you die today, you are unsure where you will spend eternity. If you die today, you are unsure about your relationship with Christ. If that's you this morning and you want to be sure, if that's you this morning and you want to place your faith in Jesus, I want you to just look up to me quickly. That's you this morning. We have one. Do you want to place your faith in Christ? We have one. Let me get everybody to lift up their eyes right quick. I'm going to close a little different today. Give our, our three points of application. I'm going to get a benediction, and they're going to sing us out. And we're going to leave praising the Lord. The first thing we need to recognize is, as we apply the text, I must value God's promise over people's opinion. There are going to be times where the world gives us good options. But when God has gave us an option, every other option is sinful. So I got to get to a place in my life where I identify what options has God given me. And I've got to value God's promise over other people's options. Secondly, I got to get to a place in my life where I follow God's plan rather than my personal perspective. It doesn't make sense. Like faith is going to not make sense. Faith does not make sense because it's not our faith, it's God's. So I got to get to the place where I don't lean to my own understanding and I'm willing to surrender my life to the Lord and I'm willing to follow God's plan rather than my own perspective. And lastly, if we think about the text, I must rest in the peace that comes from God rather than the peace that is offered by the world. The, the, the hard thing about this life that we live is that we are planted in a world that offers counterfeit peace. The world will tell you, if you just make a little bit more money, if you just have a little bit nicer house, a little bit nicer car, if you have a little bit nicer vacation, if you have a little bit nicer body, like Satan is just offering all these counterfeit things to us. And ultimately, the peace that we need is only found in Christ. The peace that I need is found in knowing that I am loved and accepted by God. The peace that I need is found in, in, in responding in a way to the Lord where I know that on my best day and my worst day, God's love for me is still consistent. And when I get to a place like that, then I have peace. It doesn't really matter what happens on the job. It doesn't really matter if I don't get the promotion. If I never attain a certain goal, when I understand 
I'm loved and accepted by God for eternity. And ultimately, as your pastor and as your brother, and even as a follower of Christ, that's why I want us to be. Where we understand the peace that only comes from God.